0: you turned into white, open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you, there's none like you. Into the darkness you shine, out of the ashes we rise. There's no one like you. It's none like you and Our God is greater Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other And our God is healer Awesome in power Our God i yeah. Tender whisper God is, um, <clears throat> he's not only completely good, but he's also completely sovereign, so that we know that everything he brings into our lives is for our good, whether we see it as good or bad or not, it's for our good, and what a peace that we can rest in, what a father we have that can love us.
1: Joe, you threw me off. I thought there was four. I counted three. All right, take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 16. I said earlier, our focus today is on a life that's changed. So change is kind of that theme word for us this morning. I read a story about a doctor and his patient. The doctor said to his patient, you're in terrible shape. You've got to do something about it. Big changes, he said, are necessary. First of all, tell your wife that she needs to cook more nutritious meals. Then he said, you need to stop working so hard. You're working like a dog. He said, also, if you can inform your wife that you're going to start making a budget and she needs to stick to it. And then he said, and have her keep the kids off your back so that you can rest up. And he tells him, he says, listen, unless there's some changes in your life, you'll probably be dead in a month. So upon hearing that, he said to the doctor, "Um, this would sound more official coming from you. Could you please give my wife a call and give her those same instructions? So the doctor did. And when the fellow got home, His wife came up to him, and she's sobbing, and she said, I talked to the doctor, and he said, you had 30 days to live. (laughs) All right, well, change. I want to read a verse, you don't need to turn there, but this kind of caught my attention, and just to kind of let you know um, for the next, what? five weeks. Uh, We won't be in a specific, going through a specific book. We won't start another book until after the first of the year. So I'm just praying that the Lord will lead me each week to what He wants me to teach. And so I couldn't get out of Acts 16 uh, this last week, but as I started studying about change in the life of a believer... I remembered the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, speaking about their position, um, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And so if you're in Christ today, your life has changed. You've moved from darkness to light. Right? You've moved to being without hope, to having hope in Christ. And as I was studying um, Acts 16, the jailer just hit me right square in the face. This man changed. He was different. His life was different. After salvation. And I got to thinking about my life, and I got to thinking about your life, and And I got to thinking about the question, and I think it's an important question. How has your life changed since Christ? You think that's a good question? I think it's a good question. I think it's one that deserves much consideration. Maybe we could say it like this. What has changed in your life since you came to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord? I'd like to recommend to you this morning, this jailer changed immensely. Like, there was a huge change in this man's life. But we need to set up the context. You can't just go to the end of the story. So I don't know how long this is going to take. I hope you brought your lunch. catch Some of you are like, if you're visiting, you're going, well, how does he really mean that? I don't. <laughs> I want to talk about the setting, first of all. And for that, we need to look down in verse 12 and 13. Because you have... Uh, Paul telling us about his travels. This is his second missionary journey. And so we have the setting here given to us. And let's read verses 12 and 13. And from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. And we were staying in this city for some days. So when you first look at that, you have to say, well, who is the weak? Isn't that a good question? I'm glad you thought of it. So the we is Paul, and the we is Silas. And who wrote the book of Acts? Luke, that's right. Good job. So Luke was there, and we know Timothy. So at least four. And so verse 12 tells us, uh, Luke writes, we were staying in this city for some days. And then he tells us in verse 13, uh, what was going on? So not only who was there, but what was going on. He writes this on the Sabbath day. We went outside the gate to a riverside. Where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer. Now when you, in the New Testament, when you read through here. A lot of times, you know, whether it's the life of Christ or the life of Paul. They go to a, a, a place, a city. And the first place they go is where? The synagogue. Well, that's not here. It's not present in the text. It says... ...where we were supposing there would be a place of prayer... ...and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Underline that, they began speaking to the women that assembled. Um, It would then be suspected that because there was no synagogue... ...or no reference to a synagogue here... ...that the Jewish population must have been small. Because in order for there to be a synagogue... ...there had to be ten males, ten Jewish males. That was the requirement. And so we come to this place... And there's no mention of a synagogue, but what there is, what is mentioned is that they go to a place of prayer. That's what they're expecting. And they go there, and the Bible says at the end of verse 13, they sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So that's kind of the setting. And then we come to the convert, the first convert in Europe. Look at verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, seller of purple fabrics... If you want to read more about the church of Thyatira, as you go on in the book of Revelation, you can do that. Luke describes, a worshiper of God was listening. What was she listening to? Well, if you go back to verse 13, the Bible says they were speaking to the women who had gathered. Um, And I would like to suggest to you, there's no wasted movement with these men. Um, Their focus is on the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's on advancing the gospel of Christ. And we need to understand that. Um, That's very important to understand. That's what the church should be about. Advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. True? That's what was on the minds of these men. And so it tells us that uh, Lydia here is a worshiper of God and she was listening. And notice this next And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So what's Paul doing? He's speaking forth what? The truth. Now listen, this is very important. The responsibility of every believer in this room is to speak forth the truth. And One of the things that you can guarantee if you're visiting with a staff, you want to set your mind at ease. When you come to this place... We're going to open God's Word. We're going to do it here in the sanctuary. We're going to do it here in the the Sunday school classes. You come on Wednesday night, we're going to open God's Word. Listen, the central focus of Paul is the gospel. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So what's Paul doing? He is doing what he needs to be doing. As a minister of the gospel of Christ, he is speaking forth the gospel. Guys, listen, and that's all of us. We all have that responsibility. You know, we don't just read these stories and go, Well, that was nice of Paul. Good job, Paul. You know, good job, Timothy. You know, we don't say to the pastors and teachers, Well, good job, guys. All of us have the responsibility to speak forth the truth of the gospel. So, Here he emphasizes the sovereignty of the Lord in salvation, but you can't bypass the fact that these men spoke the truth to Lydia and to these other women who were gathered. Verse 15 says, And when she and her household had been baptized, so there's obviously the word of God is not only being spoken, but there are results. The Bible says, Her household had been baptized. She urged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon them. So you have this setting where these ladies are gathered by this river. And the Bible says that these men go because they want to pray and they begin speaking forth the truth. And the Lord opens the heart of Lydia and she is saved. And not only her... But those in her household, and the Bible doesn't tell us who was in her household, but the requirement's the same. As we're going to run into later on in the passage, um, in order to be saved, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so apparently the gospel is just, man, it's making headway. People are getting saved. You know what, listen to me. One of the things that we need to get on board with Even though the United States is moving further and further away from the things of the Lord. My friends, listen to me. The Lord's still working. His church is still being built. Right? I mean, the question becomes, are we doing our part? You know, are we sharing the gospel? I mean, I look at this passage and over and over again, I'm just met with this consistency that these men had to share the gospel of Christ. They were so faithful. Well, when the gospel of Christ is shared, there's going to be a spiritual battle, as we know, and that's what we are introduced to in verses 16 through 21. There's a lot going on here, all right? you got to hang with me. Verse 16 says, it happened as we were going to the place of prayer, a slave girl having a spirit of divination met us, who was bringing her master's much profit by fortune-telling. Alright, so I need to give you just a little bit of a, a a Greek lesson here, all right, in terms of the words that Luke uses in describing this slave girl who was possessed by a demon. The words in the Greek um are the word pneuma puthona, um, which translated means python spirit. Alright. So Um, As I was researching that, I'm like, hey, I don't just need to keep that to myself. I need to kind of share with you guys uh, what's going on here in the life of this slave girl possessed by this python spirit. A.T. Robertson writes about uh, this phrase, and he says, This concept goes back to the Greek city of Delphi, where the god Apollo was believed to be embodied in a python snake. Um, the original priest, priestess, excuse me, at Delphi uh, was purported to be possessed by Apollo and therefore could predict the future. Therefore, anyone possessed by the python spirit could foretell coming events, which, as we read in this text, was a prophet to who? Our masters. They're benefiting from this. Okay? I just thought that was kind of interesting. I just wanted to share that with you guys. All right. So that's the Greek Greek term there. Um, so she's possessed by this python spirit. She's predicting the future. And verse 17 says, following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bond slaves. And the bond servants. In, in the Greek language, there it's the word slaves. These men are slaves. They're slaves of the Most High. Was that true? Class, you can shake your head. That was true. The slaves of the Most High God. But the second phrase is interesting. Who are proclaiming to you, and some translations have the word the. But in the Greek it's the word a. Who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation. Now, is that true? They're proclaiming what? The way of salvation. My friends, listen to me. That's how the enemy works. He disguises himself as an angel of light. And and some things that are said are what? True. That's why, listen to me, this is off the subject, but very important. That's why we need to be students of the Word of God. Because the enemy is out there, and you know, I'm not going to mention any names... These people come out and they're preaching and they're talking and they're doing all kinds of things in the name of Jesus Christ. But then as you continue to watch some of it, you're like, what are you doing? What are you saying? Well, they were proclaiming the way of salvation. So... Obviously, this was bothersome to Paul, and the Bible tells us in verse 18, she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed. Obviously, the association with this girl who's possessed is not good. And he turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. Guys, listen to me. We are in a spiritual battle today. The enemy is real. okay, And we need to protect ourselves. And Paul tells us how to do that, doesn't he, in Ephesians chapter 6. So you have the spiritual battle that's going on here. Well, verse 19 says, But when her masters saw, their hope of profit was gone. <laughs> right, she was good for what? Well, making me money. But it says, when her master saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is, which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. It's interesting that. Um, you don't have in this particular point in the passage. Paul throwing out that he was a Roman citizen. As you keep, continue to read, uh, that's introduced at the end of the at the end of the story. But here, they're brought before the chief magistrates. Paul and Silas are, and the chief magistrates. Each colony was governed by two uh, leaders called magistrates. I um, mean, they had little guys that follow them around that were called lictors, which we're going to run into in this next section. And these lictors were responsible for punishment, a lot of other different responsibilities they had. Um, But here you have these magistrates that are brought into the picture. Um, And so they accuse Paul and Silas. Well, John Walbert has an interesting uh, comment on this accusation about Paul and Silas. Um, Walberg says that Rome permitted the peoples of its colonies to have their own religions, but not to proselyte Roman citizens. And so the magistrates would have seen the preaching of Paul and Silas as a flagrant infraction of imperial law, uh, which leads to the next section. Listen to me. And you know it's coming. As we continue to move forward... It could happen where we are shut down, where our mouths are closed, where we're unable to meet in this building. Do you know that? That can happen. It's moving to that. You look in our country, we're free, but religious freedoms are being stripped. You know what, though, guys? They could lock up the building. They could throw us out of here. But you know what? The Lord's in you and the Lord's in me. And we don't have to stop speaking. I mean, we have it really good. You look at the movement of these early believers. They're always moving around and they're always being persecuted. And we sit in our nice little, well, they're not not—they're a little bit hard if, if you hadn't sat in your seat. But, you, you know, we're sitting in these seats. And we're comfortable. And as you come to this setting in Acts 16, it's about to get real uncomfortable. For Paul and Silas. And I'm just like. Man Lord. How would, I, how would I be? How would I be? Well. So they're brought before the magistrates. And then we move from that. To the punishment and imprisonment of these men. Look at verses 22 through 30. Oh yeah. We got plenty of time. 22 through 30. The Bible says. The crowd rose up together against them. And so this section we have. The punishment and the imprisonment. Of Paul, and of Silas, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off the, of, of them—that meant their outer garments—and proceeded, and, excuse me, and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. Look at verse twenty-three. And when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. Which, by the way, let me note this now while I'm thinking about it. Um, Meaning, the guard hat that was assigned to Paul and Silas had to reproduce those prisoners whenever asked. He was responsible for them. Verse 24. And he, having received such a command, threw them in the inner prison, which would have been like a dungeon, and fastened their feet in the stocks. All right. There's a lot there, so I got to share it with you. All right. Beaten with rods. Well, do you know when that phrase occurs? It occurs another time in the New Testament. And I found this article on stripes and rods. The difference between Jewish punishment and Roman punishment. So I thought, hey, these guys will be interested in this stuff. And I know you are. Because in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 and 25, as he's talking about all the things he's been through as an apostle... He says, of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, save one, meaning 39. Three times was I beaten with rods. So, in this article, this guy explains the difference between the two. And there is a difference. He writes this, to explain the singular custom of inflicting 40 stripes, save one, meaning 39, a few words from Moses may be quoted. And this is found in Deuteronomy in the 25th chapter. "...and it shall be if the wicked man brought to the judges for trial be worthy to be beaten... ...that the judge shall cause him to lie down and to be beaten before his face... ...according to his fault by a certain number. Forty stripes he may give him and not exceed... ...lest if he should exceed and beat him above these with many stripes... Then thy brothers shall seem vile unto thee. And so there was a law here in place. They could not beat them more than 40 or whip them more than 40 times. And so they stopped at 39. Um, On this subject, as on most others, the Jews refined and affected great concern. Unless they should accidentally inflict more than 40 stripes, they resolved short at 39. Listen to, to how they did that. And to ensure exactitude both ways, they invented a scourge of 13 ropes. And with this instrument, the culprit was struck three times. And by this ingenious method, the law's demands were met and the prisoner was secured against excessive punishment. And so this fully explains the nature and details of Paul's punishment in reference to being receiving 39 stripes. But there's a contrast where the Jewish law said... Not above 40. Roman law, they didn't have that. So beating with rods was a punishment inflicted, he says, by the civil authorities. It was usually executed by the lictors, which were the bodyguards for the magistrates, who were in constant attendance uh, and going before them, going before the magistrates as they went. So wherever the magistrates went, the lictors went. The insignia of their office as well as the dignity of the magistrate on whom they Attended consisted of a number of elm rods. Now listen to this. Elm rods bound with ropes into a bundle which they carried on their shoulders so they always had it with them. An axe was bound up in the bundle. You say, what was the axe for? I'm going to tell you in just a second. And its head jutted forth from it. Within the city of Rome, however, the axe was omitted out of respect to the Roman people. The bundle, in fact comprised the apparatus of the lictor as executioner of the magistrate's sentence. The rope served him to bind the criminal, and with the rods he inflicted beatings, and in capital punishment cases, you remember the axe? He beheaded those who were punished. Pretty interesting, isn't it? I thought you would think so. So when he mentions here beaten with rods, we go to Corinthians and it tells us he was beaten with rods three times. That doesn't sound fun to me. That sound fun to you? I think sometimes it's hard for us to put ourselves in the context of the story. You know, because, man, we live pretty plush lives. And we're not ever faced with somebody, right, arresting us, ripping off our outer garments and beating us. I can't even fathom that. Can you fathom that? When I mean, all of a sudden somebody comes in and they drag me off. You'll probably say, see you later, Thad, right? <laughs> it can happen. These guys, listen. They paid a great price for following the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and i got to tell you something else about this inner prison. Notice at the end of verse 24. They fastened their feet in the stocks. So they're beaten with rods, and and there's no limit to the amount of beating. And then the Bible says they were fastened their feet in the stocks. Now that sounds kind of innocent, doesn't it? Well, they put their their feet in these chains. Ah, but if you do a little research and study, you find out that when when they fastened their feet, With these wooden stocks, you know how they did that? It wasn't like this comfortable, hey, lay back and let me put chains on you. They would spread their legs as far as they could go. And then they would fasten them in the stocks. Why? Cramping. They would cramp. And so it wasn't pleasant. Nothing about what's going on here sounds pleasant. Does it to you? Doesn't sound pleasant to me. So if I'm Paul and Silas, then my next move is, Hey, Lord, what's up? What's going on? Why this? Why us? Your phone. Why this? Why us? Right? You'd think they'd be going, Man, Lord. I mean, that's sometimes what I'll admit I do when something's going on in my life I don't like. Man, Lord, you, you're not guilty of that, I know, right? But listen, sometimes when trials and tribulations are going on, I we're like, why, Lord? And so I look at the response of these guys, and I'm just absolutely blown away. I'm like, this is a different kind of thing going on. Um, well, what's going on? Look at verse 25. But about midnight, and in the Greek language, the the time frame could be between midnight and dawn. That all this goes on. But about midnight, Paul and Silas, they were praying. Well, that's good. It doesn't seem to be that they're praying imprecatory prayers like God get them. You don't see that here. They're just praying. And the Bible says they're singing hymns of praise to God. So they're praying and they're singing. The praying I get, the context does not reveal what they're praying. But I'd like to suggest this. And this is just a suggestion. I don't believe they're being selfish in their prayers. I don't believe that at all based on what's about to happen. You know what I believe? I believe that Paul and Silas knew that the Lord was in control. Do you believe the Lord's in control? No matter what comes our way, I'm scared to even say those words. Because I don't know what's coming my way, but the Lord's in control. Maybe they're doing what the Lord Jesus told his disciples to do. (laughs) You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Hey Lord, that's not right. How can that be? Pray for those that persecute you. I believe they're praying for them. I believe they're praying for the advancement of the gospel. I believe they're praying and seeing about the sovereignty of the Lord. Lord, you're in control. You got this. Well... Notice the end of verse 25. And the prisoners were doing what? They were listening. (laughs) Now, can you imagine what was typically said in a prison? Right? Under those circumstances? Words that you and I might not say. Right? There's all kinds of language going on. Do you get me? All kinds of things being said. But praying and singing praises to God, that's weird. Because, listen, these other prisoners knew how uncomfortable they were. Guys, I wrote down in my notes, um, people are watching us, and they're listening to us when we're going through trials, we're going through tribulations. They're watching, and they're listening. I have a friend that years ago was going through a, a trial in his life, and um, he was witnessing to this other friend of his. And this other friend of his would attend church, but, you know, nothing was going on. And um, my friend was going through a lot. And this, his friend was watching him and how he was handling all that. And do you know what that led to? It led to the same thing, same question. At the Philippian jailer, asked Paul and Silas, "What must I do to be saved? How are you handling this?" Amen. Guys, people are watching us. They're watching how we're handling pain and suffering, and these guys are—they're praising God and they're praying to God. Well, then we move from the amazing response to the supernatural deliverance, and there's a lot in here too. Look at this, man—we still got plenty of time. Praise the Lord. And suddenly there came an earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. And they're like, Yeah, we're out of here. When the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. Why? Because he was responsible for them. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. That's a weird statement. Notice what it says. It didn't, prisoners there is plural, and we have to assume more than just Paul and Silas. And so if you're a prisoner and your chains are falling out, what are you doing? See ya! I'd like to suggest to you that the actions of Paul and Silas were not, not only impacting the jailer, but other prisoners. It's weird! Because look at what Paul says. Look what it said. Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself. For what? Some of us are here. Is that what he says? No. He says, all of us are here. Now, listen, my friends, we don't know how many all is there. I got no idea. I at least know two. But there's more. We're all here. I'm going, man, listen, what was going on in that prison that night was unbelievable. I'd like to suggest that. And I would like to suggest that the actions of Paul and Silas are none other than two men being controlled by the Spirit of God. Because there is no other explanation. Because their pain was brutal, they're bleeding, their legs are cramping, and they're praising God. And I'm reading that, going, "Man, Lord, I complain when I have an ingrown toenail." I know you guys don't, right? Shh. I heard a sermon this week about complaining. It was incredible. I'm listening to the sermon. I'm like, hey, I'm about to talk about some of that on Sunday. And you think about the things we complain about. The person that's going slow in front of us. Move! Right? And I started making a list of the things that Thad Blunt complains about. And it was long. And I thought, man, Lord, here these guys are. And they belong to you, and they're not making sense. But they belong to you, so it makes sense. Well, still got plenty of time. Paul said, we're all here. And he called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said... Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now we're not told how much the jailer heard. I don't know what he heard. Did he hear him singing? Did he hear him praying? Did he know what was going on with this slave girl who was possessed by a demon? Did he hear the words of Paul and Silas? I don't know. But I know this. This changed this man. He went from a, just a jailer to a very curious jailer asking the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Universalists would say, You don't have to do anything. You're good. The legalist would say, Oh, there's about 18 things you got to do. What did Paul say? Notice, it wasn't just Paul that said it. Look at verse 31, right? Verse 31. It says, they said, they said, they said, they said. The reason I love that so much is, listen, Paul gets a whole lot of ink and a whole lot of credit. But Silas was speaking too. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household." Now, some look at that and go, okay, well, if he believes, then the household will believe. Well, the requirement's the same. In order to be saved, no matter if you're talking about the jailer or his family, they had to do what? Believe. Now, I want to show you this changed life. This man is introduced to Jesus Christ. Whew! It's good stuff. You're wide awake. Ready? Here we go. The first thing we see in this man's life is that the word was in his home. I would grant you that before this night, the word was not in his home. But this night, the word is in his home. And you know what Paul and Silas are doing? Bringing forth the word. Listen, because faith comes by what? Hearing and hearing by the word of God. Man, I love this text. And so the word of God is in his home. Look at verse 32. And they spoke the word of God, or the word of the Lord, to him. And not just to him, but with all who were in his house. And the Bible doesn't tell us how many were in his house. But it's late. So who's ever there, it's been the night. They spoke the word of God to him together with all who were in his house. Man, I love that. Because we're going to see... That all his house, everyone in that house came to Christ. You know what I would like to suggest this morning? That the church needs to get on board with the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is in the business of saving souls. And I, I'm just, I'm gonna say this as nice as I can. I think that maybe some are in the church, are just going, ah, I'm good. I don't need to do anything. But we do need to do something, don't we? Man, we need to be as zealous as these men. We need to be zealous about the gospel. We need to say, listen, we don't need to say, oh, it's good news. No, it's great news. Jesus Christ came to this earth to pay the penalty for our sins. He died for your sin, and he died for my sin, and he died for the sins of the world. Praise God. And he didn't deserve it, but he took all of it on himself. And he took the Father forsaking him. Never happened before. He took it all on himself for who? The Bible says he died for the sins of the world. Are all going to come to faith in Christ? No, but listen to me. Our responsibility is to share the gospel. Share the gospel. It's happening in other parts of the world. I wish it happened here a little more. I got a quick question. Oh, good, it's only 1130. The Word of God was in his home. Question, is the Word of God in your home? I got to thinking about that. I thought it was a good question. Because the Word of God is here. The Word of God is in our Sunday school classes. It's in, our, it's in our youth ministry and college ministry. But it's the word of God in our home. It was in his home. Well, the second thing I see is that this man humbled himself. Look at verse 33. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. He saw, the jailer did, those inflicted with punishment. Now he's taking Paul and Silas and he's humbling himself to the point of washing their wounds. No jailer does that. This jailer did. Why? This man was changed. He's a changed man. The word was in his home. He, he, He cleans or washes the wounds of Paul and Silas. And then thirdly, to show us that his identity had changed, that he was in Christ, the Bible says that he was baptized in all his house. All of them were baptized. It didn't say they waited, it says they were baptized. He and his house, all of them. So his identity, listen, he went from being a jailer to being a jailer in Christ. <laughs> Well, the word of God was in his home. He humbled himself. He cleaned their wounds. And the Bible says that he and his household were baptized. And then the fourth thing that I see is the jailer went from uh, securing prisoners to serving believers. Notice verse 34. And he brought them into his house and set food before them. <laughs> Listen, before in the story, what's he concerned about? Securing prisoners. Now, what's he doing? Serving believers. Is that, you know, there's the gift of service. And we stand back and we applaud those that have the gift of service. But all of us are required to serve, all of us are. So he went from securing prisoners to serving believers. And the last thing that I would note is that the jailer went from trembling with fear to rejoicing exceedingly. Look at verse 34. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Rejoicing. And that's, listen, that's what believers do, right? We rejoice. Are we always happy? You answer that question. Are you always happy? You are. No, you're not. I'm not always happy. When that ingrown toenail is present, I'm not happy. Right? When my headache's there, I'm not happy. When my stomach ache, man, I hate stomach virus. When it's there, I'm not happy. But even in the midst of all that crud, I can have joy. The joy of the Lord. I'd like to suggest to you this morning... This man changed. I'd like to suggest to you that it's the Bible that tells us this man changed. Listen, he went from a dead man to a man who was alive. He went from darkness to light. What about you? Is there change in your life? Can you go back and, oh my goodness, my glasses broke. Can you go back, and I can point this at you. Can you go back to that point of salvation and go, wow, Lord, the change that's taken place in my life, how can I thank you? Now I live with purpose. Well, I want to close. I want you to take your Bibles and go to Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. We're done with this. Philippians 4. I was reminded about this when I looked at that last change that I observed here in Acts 16 you know he went from trembling with fear as we're told in the story to rejoicing greatly and I was reminded of what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi this is a great place to close chapter 4 verse 4 rejoice in the Lord Sometimes, is that what it says, man? How do you explain Paul and Silas? <laughs> rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. My friends, listen to me. If you're in Christ today, there is much to rejoice about. And when we re- we read stories like this in Acts, you know, when I when I was finished studying, I thought, you know. Lord, the change in this man's life was evident. You can see it. The scripture alludes to it. But you can also see the change in the life of Paul and Silas. Because you know what they do? They continue on. They don't let what happened to them in Philippi stop them. They continue on with the message of the gospel. Lord, help us to be as faithful as those men. Let's pray together. Lord, this is an amazing passage. It just, uh, last week or so, it's just gripped my heart to, to see how faithful your servants were. And, um... I'm not sure how I'd respond, given that setting, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'd like to think that no matter what took place, I would be praying and singing to you. Um, Lord, I guess we can't know those things until we're met with those things, but I pray that you would help us, as Paul wrote in Corinthians, to be steadfast Immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that our labor is not in vain. And Paul and Silas knew that their suffering was not in vain. How much rejoicing was going on in that house that night. With all those who were saved. How much rejoicing in the midst of suffering was going on with Paul and Silas. And even in the midst of all that affliction, Lord, they didn't. Say, well, we're done with this. They just kept right on going. Lord, I pray you'd help us to have that resolve in our own lives. That no matter what we face, no matter what comes our way. Because as we turn the corner in life, there are things that are presented to us that we weren't expecting. Maybe we're not ready for emotionally. But Lord, we serve you. You're an amazing God. And just as you were present by that river when those men were teaching those women and Lydia came to know you, you were present in the prison. And you knew all those things, all that suffering would work out for the furtherance of the gospel. And that the jailer and his house, all those in his house would come to know you. And so I pray. Lord that, that we would be faithful in giving out the gospel. And the Lord, we would expect results because you're a great and awesome God. And you are in the business of saving others. And I think for some reason in the United States, I, I don't know if we're just kind of I don't know what we're doing sometimes. I think we're just kind of sitting back and saying, "Oh, that's nice what's happening over in these other countries." Lord, help us to know our mission field's right here. And there are so many people that are home today. They're sitting at home. And all they've had is this Thanksgiving weekend, eating and watching football and all that. And that's it. That's all their hope is in. But Lord, for those of us who are in Christ today, those things, we know they're going by the wayside. But Lord, you remain forever. Your word remains forever forever. And everyone's going to live eternally. It's just where are you going to live? Are you going to live in the presence of God or away from the presence of God? I pray that everyone in this place would examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. Thank you for your word recorded for us that we might grow by it. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Let us all stand as we sing and bless the name of the Lord together.